made the point when we started uh, this series on Romans that the first uh, eight chapters of Romans are, are Paul at his most theological, at his most academic. Uh, and he's talking in very academic terms and very theoretical terms about the, uh, the gospel. And then in chapters 9 to 11 we have Israel presented as the, as the example, the parade example of God's grace and how they're really going to be saved by grace regardless of works and then the rest of the the letter is all practical exhortation which is full of allusion back to his reasoning about the gospel here in chapters 1 to 8 and so far in in his argument here in Romans he's been talking about the language of the courtroom as if we stand there condemned and we genuinely are condemned we truly are sinners And yet, because we are in Christ, we will be saved. And not only saved by the skin of our teeth, as it were, not at all. We are counted right, declared right, justified. As if we were not guilty at all. And not only as if we're not guilty, but as if we are actually wonderful. As if we are righteous. And that is because we are in Christ. And so, because of that, he says, we have peace with God. Here in chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because we are justified. It's the language of the guy in the courtroom who's suddenly declared right. And all those things he feared, his terrible fear of condemnation is taken away. And what is he filled with? Peace. And this is not only talking about what shall happen in the last day, when we stand before Jesus, as it were, physically, but the judgment is in a sense ongoing. It's now. It's not as if God has closed the book, and when he comes back he'll sort of have a look at us and see how we've been getting on. We stand before his judgment now, because in that sense, whenever God and man come together, we are, as it were, in his judgment presence. And we have peace with God now. That, wow, it's really all right. Now that peace with God that he talks about as our present experience here in verse 1, it just can't exist if all the time we're doubting and worrying whether we shall be saved. I think we should be able to say that if the Lord returns at this moment, I will be saved. By God's grace. In fact, I think we must be able to say that, because otherwise it's not good news. It's worrying news. There's no good news at all in the message that if it's just, well, yes, you come to judgment and you've got a a chance, if you're baptized into Jesus, you kind of got a chance of being in this wonderful kingdom that's to come. Well, this whatever wonderful kingdom there is to come, um, if I don't know if I have no guarantee that I'm going to be there like that's bad news that's terribly worrying news but we have peace with God now right now because we are now justified we have been declared right now okay we can throw it all away tomorrow but I wonder if Jesus when he said don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of uh, all its evil for itself, I wonder if he's not only talking about not worrying about material things, which appears to be the immediate context, but I wonder if he's also talking about this, that 
believe and rejoice in your relationship with God and the certainty of your salvation now. I don't keep fantasizing too much about what I might do tomorrow or ten years or whatever that I might throw it all away. This, no. You just rejoice every day in God's salvation and you will get to the end of your days in peace. And so he says in verse 2 that we have access into this grace wherein we stand. And remember that chapters 3 and 4 have been full of judgment language in which we are left, as it were, standing in the dock before the judgment of God and then by grace we're declared right. And we stand there before God's judgment very much in grace. This language of access into, it suggests that uh, this grace... Where we, wherein we stand, is a situation, it's a place, it's a status, where we are, as it were, permanently located. And access into a place wherein you can stand is apparently used in classical Greek um, about entering a royal presence. So we are right now in God's presence acceptable, and we are in it because we're in a status how do we enter that status? Chapter 6 is pretty clear. We are baptized into Christ. We are now in Christ. And therefore, verse 5, we are not ashamed. Chapter 5 here, verse 5. We have that, uh, that hope that makes not ashamed. Because we have the hope of salvation, the physical salvation in the future, when Christ comes, we are not ashamed now. Now it is the condemned who will be ashamed. That some will arise, and Daniel says in the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 2, to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelation 16:15, walk naked and see his shame. Their shame will be revealed to all, Jude 13, etc. But we who believe that we will be saved, we who, as he says in verse 2, rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and hope does not mean the possibility. It means the real, definite, concrete uh, hope that we really will uh, receive, the, the thing for which we, uh, we, we, as it were, hope for. We rejoice in that hope. And as I say, you can't rejoice in that hope if... The, ju- the day of judgment is a big enigma. It's a big question mark that is at the end of our destiny. The point is that day of judgment is now. And in another sense, that day of judgment was when Christ died. As we are also invited to see his death, as he said, now is the judgment of this world. That sin was condemned, and that's your sin and mine. That it was dealt with. And we now have been declared right. So then, we now, in a sense, are living out the feelings of those who will go to the right-hand side of the Day of Judgment, those who will not be ashamed. Now, how can we come to the Day of Judgment, both now and in the future, and be unashamed, when we know all our sins? The only way I think you can be unashamed is because you know that really they have been dealt with that you are sure that really you are in Christ, that the old man has died, the old Duncan is no more. And the only one that ultimately exists is the one is the, the person of, of Duncan that is united with and in Christ. 
and Christ is in me, and I am in him. So then, uh, as I have uh, said before, it seems that one reason why God worked it all out like this, the death of Christ as it was, was because he knew that we would find it so difficult to believe this good news, that the good news is almost too good news, it's too good to believe, and we're all uh, cynics really at heart, we've experienced all kinds of things that look like a free offer, when there's always a price tag attached. You can uh, get this free bit of perfume or whatever, but the idea is really that you buy the bottle. Uh, A a poor country gets help from uh, the the West or whatever it might be, but there is always the the implication that you must be loyal. And yet the love of God is just not like that. He is putting before us the simple truth that he put before Abraham. I am prepared to count you righteous, although you are not. I'm prepared to use you in a way that does not depend on the fact that your body is impotent and your wife is impotent. I'm willing to use you beyond your natural limitations, moral and physical. And I will give you eternal life. I will make you a blessing, not just existing forever, but as a blessing to others, which is the only way really to to live uh, in any uh, useful and enjoyable way. And you will eternally inherit the earth. And that's it. Abraham, there's the package. Look at the stars, social, your seed be. And we said in Romans 4 that there are just three words there in the Hebrew. And maybe it took Abraham ten seconds or it took him ten hours to believe. But he did. Through the process that's described there in Romans 4 of him persuading himself, making himself strong, not setting his mind upon his impotent body, although he looked at it, but then he didn't keep thinking about that and didn't want to let his humanity be a barrier to his faith in what God had said, and eventually he truly said yes. Now, that is to be our faith, and yet God realizes that it's difficult for us. And so we saw in chapter 4 that one reason that Jesus died was so that God could bring forth before our eyes, sort of chapter 3, the blood of Christ, which he set forth in 325 uh, as a legal uh, evidence, is set forth in a court of uh, law. He set forth the blood of Christ, as it were, on the atonement cover, as a propitiation, uh, as a mercy seat, as the atonement cover, to declare verse 26, in a legal sense to declare his righteousness and that really he is going to justify us and count us right that's one reason Christ died in the public way that he did to persuade us that really God loves us and this wonderful plan is for real and you got this again in verse 8 here chapter 5 verse 8 God commends his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Now, does the love of God need, as it were, any commendation? Well, I'm afraid it does, because we are so resistant to the idea that you, Duncan, or whoever you are, you will be saved. Yes, this is all true for you. God could have saved us anyhow he liked. didn't actually require the death of Christ. In one sense, you could say, yes, it did. It had to fulfill all the Mosaic... uh, 
types and shadows, but then that only throws a question a stage further back. Well, why, why were all those types and shadows there? Why all the same? Was it required? I don't see that's an answer. So one reason was that through this dramatic thing that God did, that he gave, he, he had a son, his only begotten son. The God who existed from eternity had never had a son. He didn't just create one, that son was begotten. Begotten, not created, as one of the creeds say. That is absolutely right. There was something of God in that child. And he gave that child to die for us, the just for the unjust, that he might commend his very own love toward us. So then, all the time, God is trying to persuade us. Now, we therefore are, as he says in verse 10, reconciled to God. And this happened in status, as it were, while we were enemies. Through the death of his son we were reconciled. And much more being reconciled, we shall be saved. It's as if he's saying, the God who gave his son to, to reconcile us, like it's a lot it's not so difficult for him to save us and so our doubt in salvation is met I think by the fact that really and truly Jesus died for us and God really gave his son for us and so he again trying to persuade us to, to accept all this, he talks about Adam, and he, he says that through one, verse 15, many be dead. And I think the point he's making here is that just one person can affect so many. Adam is proof enough of the power of one. That because of what he did, all these billions of people have suffered down through the generations, and that includes us. And true as that obviously is, then he, he flicks the argument round. Okay, so what's your problem then in believing that the righteousness of one, that is Jesus, can really affect your status before God today? We doubt, perhaps, in our weakness, that the obedience of one man, the Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, hanging on a stake of wood on a Friday afternoon, on a day in April, just outside a Middle Eastern city, what can that do for me today? Can that really change anything? And the point is, on the basis of Adam, yes it can, because what Adam did, some millennia before what Jesus did, radically affects us today. It's affected all of us, all down, all down the, the generations. And just as surely, God, through Jesus, is prepared to count us who are in him as really and truly being saved and no longer having to suffer what the, the, the consequences of Adam's sin eternally. And he, he marvels uh, in verse 15, at the end of verse 15, the, so the gift by grace, which is in one man, Jesus Christ has abounded unto the many. It's an abounding grace. 
It's not as if God has just given us something. There is a, a super abounding giving that has has gone on. And that abundance of grace is in Paul's mind in Ephesians 1.8 that God has lavished his grace upon us in Christ. And he uses this idea in 2 Corinthians where he asks the the, the believers there to be generous, to give, because of God's giving. And the words for grace and giving are related. The point is that we cannot be passive to what God has done for us in Christ. And also I think, just on a practical level, in our giving, in our response, we should be super generous. There's a a similar word for superabundance that's used in three of the Gospels to describe the superabundance of food that was over after Jesus did the feeding miracles. There were, first of all, twelve full baskets left over, and then seven full baskets. Now, why that apparent over-creation of food? Well, it seems to me that this was just an example of how God loves to be gracious and generous. That should mean not only that we are super abundant in our generosity, but also that we do not doubt that really we will be saved, that we really will be in his kingdom. He wants to do us good in our latter end. And so, chapter 5, verse 16, the judgment came of one unto condemnation, but the free gift came of many trespasses unto justification, or unto righteousness. And I think that the idea is that if we are justified, if we see the wonder of all this, that God has just said, I'll give this to you. You believe it? And we say, "Uh, yes, I believe you. I believe I will be saved. Then you can't just be passive to that. You naturally will want to respond in, in righteousness. So then the judgment that he talks about there in verse 16, the judgment uh, is unto condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto, unto righteousness. Yeah, he's playing logical games if you like, but the more we realise how many are our offences, the more we will be righteous in response not that our righteousness can save at all but it is a response to what he has done and so he he says uh, that in 21 verse 21 that grace reigns through righteousness how is grace a king in that we respond to that grace and we are not passive to it anymore so then how then do we become in Christ? How do we get into this uh, status? Well, that's what chapter 6 is all about, that it is by baptism. And there you see the huge significance of baptism, that by baptism we become in Christ. And therefore the whole uh, sphere of our existence before God is, is in him. Now, of course, we still are in the flesh, and chapter 7 is going to make clear But the point is that God looks at us as if we are Christ. And we who are in Christ by baptism into him should feel and act as God sees us. 
And don't forget, Paul is not writing to people trying to persuade them to be baptised. He's writing to people who are baptised, like us, trying to persuade us of the significance of that and the implications, the wonderful implications, of the fact that we are in him and that therefore we should be counting ourselves, looking at ourselves as he looks at us. That we are, verse 5, incorporated with him in a death like his that we are in the likeness of his death. It's the Greek word uh, symphitoi, which is where the symphony comes from, or the word that's uh, related, let's say, to the word symphony. We and Jesus, in his time of dying, are in symphony together. All your sufferings, all mine, are somehow connected with his sufferings there and that is why he suffered so much so that nobody could ever say that nobody knows how I feel because for sure the Lord Jesus does and so the fact that we are baptized into Christ means that all the time we should be looking at our lives and thinking well am I living in Christ and so this way apparently Martin Luther when he struggled to overcome temptation would take a chalk and would write uh, on a a board, Baptizatus sum, I am baptized. In other words, this is not for me, because I'm in Christ. So then, if we be dead, verse 8, if we be dead, if we died with Christ in baptism, we believe that we shall also live with him. He's really pleading with us to realize that if we are in him... If we really were baptized into him, we will also, for sure, live with him. And so he says in verse 9, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. And yet we're told in verse 14, that therefore sin should not have dominion over us in practice. So it's not painless to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If you say to someone, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Did Jesus rise from the dead? It's pretty easy to shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, sure, and just carry on. But actually it's not that easy. Because if the Lord Jesus really rose from the dead, and you and I are baptized into him, we shall also rise from the dead, and death will not have dominion over us. And the point is that therefore our response to that in this life is that sin should not be allowed by us to have dominion over us. Verse 11, I think, is the uh, the key in all this. Reckon you also yourselves. And that's the Greek word that's translated impute, when Paul's been going on about imputed righteousness in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And now he says, you impute to yourselves that you're dead to sin. In other words... God looks at you as if you are Jesus. You now look at yourself as if you are him. Although you're human, he says in verse 12, about your mortal body that you've still got, but we are to look at ourselves as if we are him. We are not to, verse 13, therefore to give our bodies, our our, uh, members as instruments, or it's the same word, it's translated armor or weapons, to 
unrighteousness, but rather uh, unto God. So we're called to fight. We're called to be fighters one way or the other. And we are to not be weapons of unrighteousness, but weapons of God. Now, a soldier can't be on two sides. You've got the same, I think, in verse 23, where the military metaphor, I think, is continued. When he uses uh, a Greek word for, for wages there, the wages of sin is death. Um, this is specifically used about pay given to soldiers. So, a soldier can't be on two sides. And although, yes, we are in the flesh, and yet we're also in the spirit in a sense, in our heart of hearts, our allegiance can only be clearly on one side. And the sphere, as I would put it, uh, that we should be committed to in our hearts is that of God and, and of Jesus. So then, the whole sphere of our life and our being should be in Christ. That means that the sort of things that fill our lives, our thinking, our social activities, um, what you do with your spare time, uh, the sort of attitude you have in your employment, in in raising uh, families, in homemaking, the whole sphere of our movement, of our mental uh, conception of everything, is to be in him. Although we are in the flesh, yes, but we are counted by God as if we are righteous. And this is how we, verse 11, are to count ourselves. Reckon yourselves. Although, of course, you sin. Keep on reminding yourself that that is not really me. That his view of me is so positive. And that is the view of myself which I'm going to to have. Now, this is a struggle. This is a huge homework to give you. But this is what it's all about. If we look at the cross of Jesus and realize that he died for me, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and that we really are before the, the righteous judgment of God, in the dock before him, we are counted righteous.